and welcome to the Home Lab Show Live, episode 92. This is exciting. How you doing, yep. Jay? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good. We're ready to do some live Q&A, which always kind of happens generally, but we're going to get more specific. We have feedback at the Home Lab Show. I do have my email open. So if some new emails come in while the show, um, throughout the show, we'll answer them. What we're going to do yep. is uh, we want to catch up on a couple things because I know Jay wants to talk about Proxbox, which uh, a lot of you are probably fans of and the new dark mode they have which i don't care what technology they change they have dark mode and that matters <laughs> <That's>... yes <laughs> and, and what's weird about dark mode is i never i was never one of those people that absolutely adored it i thought it was cool i liked it um and i just kind of just switched over to it and i didn't really prefer it but then after a while like i think it was yesterday i tried switching pop os back to uh, you know light mode and i'm like how did i ever like last through this because it was blinding to my eyes and I don't think I ever noticed it because I never really used dark mode as much until I did and then after a while it's like going back to it is how did we survive this it's crazy yeah once once you're used to it you're like I don't want it to go back <laughs> no no it's easier on the eyes at least for me so um that's definitely something Yep. Now, before we get any further, let's mention that we do have a sponsor, and that is the, we'll call them for now, so people understand are the same people. Uh, it's just been transitioned to name, the Akamai Linode, Linode Akamai. If you look for the Linode, it still directs there. It's still the same. It's still the same people. Akamai did buy Linode, so we're going to change it up, just letting people know that we thank them for being a sponsor to the show. If you're looking for a place to host your stuff that might be better off in a cloud, you can use the Akamai Cloud. Is that is Akamai Cloud is what they're calling it, right? Akamai Connected Cloud is the new Akamai title. Connected Cloud. But it's, we've been in touch with them. And the, the thing is, they totally get it. Like yeah. um, the name change, they understand it's not going to be next day. They also understand, and this is the this is true, the number of videos I've pre-recorded already where I have said Linode is the sponsor. And there's one I'm editing now. And they, you know, they understand. So Linode, Akamai Connected Cloud is one yep. and the same. But, you know, it's uh, it's a new name. Yeah. So this is a weird sponsor, read because we wanted to address that it's really the same. As a matter of fact, our contacts are the same. Uh, that's actually, we, you know, everything when there's changes in the industry, it's met with cautious optimism. Uh, right. Me and Jay are we skeptics of things, but they have proven that they want to continue on with the sponsorship. So we thank them for sponsoring the show in the weirdest ad read I've done. <laughs> yeah, it probably is, but I, I feel like the transparency here is, um, you know, it's the important. Fact that we can be this honest about our feelings here. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think that says a lot actually. So that's, that's a really important um, aspect. Me and G care a lot about is who sponsors it. We, we get, uh, lots of crazy offers. Matter of fact, I, I'd actually recommend people watch. There's a video done by, uh, the, fairly large tech YouTuber, MKBHD, he said, I said yes to everything in my inbox. That's a funny video because I've seen the weirdest things come through my inbox. And of course, so is he. So he just said yes and let them send them all the random. Uh, and when you're at the scale he's at compared to the scale me and Jay are at, you get some really weird sponsors. We'll just throw it out there. Just, yeah, there's all it, it, stuff that we could say yes to and be strange. But uh, And I like that he started out, he did have a casket, I think was the first thing on his ad list. He said, I'll review that. That's crazy. <laughs> I've never had anything like that. But I mean, one thing that I get constantly and I... I almost considered it because it was like a, I forgot who made it. I honestly don't remember the company anymore, but it was like a $400 uh, computer chair. It was actually really nice. And I'm thinking, why? Because I'm not going to make a video about a chair that's not going to get traction. Nobody's really interested in that in my channel, but they seem to think that there's a Linux match to a chair. 
Not really. It's not really a thing. A chair might be comfortable oh, while I'm hacking. People but sit in chairs, don't they? They wanted a full review of this chair. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to review a chair. And how do you review a, a chair? I mean, just have a camera pan around the chair and show yourself like collapsing into the seat. I mean, this just, I don't even know how that would work. Yeah. <laughs> we get a lot of these. It's uh, jewelry companies, for example. Oh. Um, I don't know anything about jewelry. I really don't. So I wouldn't be able to speak about that. So there's a lot of these. Definitely a lot. So, yep. All right, let's swing it back over to what today's topic is. And the first thing we're me and Jay are going to do is just talk about some updates. Uh, and mm -hmm. then we're definitely going to be talking about uh, some taking some questions from you. And we just have some that were sent in already. So that'll kind of kick this off as well. Um, but uh, what else besides dark mode got updated in Proxmox? I think that's probably worth bringing that up. That is probably the biggest thing. And okay. I mean, there's a lot of different things, but a lot of, but usually what happens when you have these point releases is that. They've updated a lot, so you can't really say that there's not a lot to get excited for because it's not like they were just um, on vacation the whole time and only had a few days to develop it. I mean, they're working really hard on this. So um, a, a big part of this is catching up everything to a newer Linux kernel and newer uh, libraries. They even go, and they've, they've done this before, uh, newer kernels than what Debian normally ships, which is... Yeah, it seems to always be the case nowadays. And then they have a, a six point something kernel. I think it's 6.2 that you can upgrade to uh, separately. Um, and that's just optional if you need that. It, it's not something most people I think would need to do unless there's a feature there. But the, when it comes to usability improvements, I think dark mode is probably going to be the biggest thing. Um, that said, I, I've had a chance to try this out. The upgrade went smooth. It was literally just, you know, go to the update section, hit the button and then come back. So that was pretty smooth. Dark mode is okay. I, I'm I'm not going to say it's the best, but I'm not going to say it's unusable. And it, there's just some tweaks that I think are needed because it just seems like the font is just very jagged against the um, uh, background. If you're using the uh, tag feature where you have little circles next to the VM, um, at least on my end, there's not enough anti-aliasing there, so it kind of looks like a um, you know spiky circle in a way. So it, it's a, it's good. It's just um, I think it just needs a little bit more work, but it's good enough for me to keep enabled though. So I don't want to say like everyone's going to absolutely hate it, and I'm not saying it's terrible um, in every sense, but it's not the best. But you know, it's a start, and I think it's a step in the right direction. But other than that, it's catching up. I mean. I'm looking at QEMU 7.2, Lexi 5.0.2. So they're updating a lot of the backend things. So you could notice some improvements in performance potentially. That could happen. So there's a lot of improvements. It's just this is going to be the most uh, forward-facing improvement of all of them. Yeah. Um, I don't use Proxmox still. So I'll leave. <laughs> there's my comments on it. Yeah. So I mean, it's all be um, for it. <laughs> It's like the team Proxmox, team XCP, even though yeah. I love both, even though I, I, I could say that all day long and people are like, which one do you, which one's the best? It's like everyone has to know the best. Um, but you use whatever resonates the most with you. I'm actually surprised it didn't um, go towards XCPNG because I've had a number of years managing Citrix virtualization for um, that platform, which is where that came from. Yeah, kind of the um, before XCPNG. I see yeah. someone asked a question. I want to confirm if you answered. Can you go from seven point three to seven point four uh, from the command line? Or okay, you you can. It is at the end of the day, it's just you know apt update, apt dist upgrade. But when you hit the button, 
inside the GUI, it's doing that's what it's doing. It just opens up a window with that's like a terminal window inside of okay. a browser window, and that's all it does. It just basically does that. So yeah, um, the, the back end of XCPNG is just yum update. So there, that's yeah. one nice thing. Even now, XCPNG is a little different because they don't include any repositories for their base OS other than theirs. Like it doesn't, it only pulls from XCPNG repositories. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Proxmox pulls from Proxmox plus Debian. Is that correct? Yeah, if you could flip it a little bit, because it's usually Debian first, and then everything else comes second. I'm like, it's the other way around with XCP. So it's the um, inverse of that. Because okay. you could literally install Proxmox on a Debian system. You can install Debian from Debian Media, get your server set up, and then you can literally install Proxmox on top of it to convert it into a Proxmox server. So it's Debian first, and then Proxmox later, whereas XCP is XCPNG first, and then sent to us second. It's the opposite. Right. Um, Looking at, do you you have the uh, feedback part pulled up? Line 186? I am pulling that up right now. Okay, I'll read this one because I don't mind answering it. Uh, (laughs) When people mention a 3-2-1 backup rule, I always get hung up on number two. I have three copies, one of them physically uh, distinct, but they are all on (laughs) HDSDs of some kind. I don't really uh, mind burning to magnetic disks or four, or or I don't really want to be burning MDIS, four terabyte of data. Uh, is the two mediums rule still relevant in today's world? Um, I would probably <laughs> say that's not easy to do anymore. Uh, it depends. It really comes down to data. But I mean, keeping it on a like when you have a ton of data and telling, especially like a home user uh, or even many of the home that people here to use like, oh, you need to put on a different medium. You shouldn't have it on there. Having two separate NASs, awesome. I think that's adequate for your two <laughs> on sites, but saying you should keep one of them on tape um, locally, it, it's, it's not reasonable. The type, the amount of data a lot of people have, it's hard enough getting two NASs, but saying another medium type and trying to put it on some type of archival tape or, you know, in a year's past, I would have burned a DVD. It was what I used to do with a lot of this stuff, but that's, you know, that's not as easy to do. It's also way harder to synchronize it unless you go with one of these really expensive, are they called LTO tape drives? Um, But I would say if you have them on two separate machines with different credentials would be a big piece of that. This is something where we see this a lot from where debriefing attacks is they use the same set of credentials for all their NAS systems. For example, this is a bigger flaw. So you can substitute, I would say here in modern times, having two separate areas, you store them. Let's just say two different, if you have two different NAS is cool, but either way, not using the same credentials across those NASs. So one doesn't have, the ability to delete the other, or if one of them gets cracked, someone goes, hey, this password works everywhere. That is actually, uh, I'd say, a really solid protection and probably could be substituted for the rule. And I've seen the back, the three, two, one rule uh, both ways. Not, they say two copies, but I, I've seen it missing a lot more often when it says two mediums because it's, it, it's not as practical as maybe it used to be. In the early right. days, when my data fit on a single CD, not even DVD, because there wasn't that many documents or data, it was easy. Um, that is now, especially when me and Jay talk about videos, we certainly aren't backing up all of our videos with two copies uh, to like an LTO drive that we have. That's it's yeah, it, we're not. Even doing Linus that. has talked about the challenges of doing that. That's why he's bought more NAS servers uh, to spread this across at his scale. So it's more common, I think, to see that. And when we deal with the enterprise space, that's definitely what we're doing. They usually, you know, put put it in different. They'll have a couple of copies on site, sometimes redundant NASs on site, and then another copy off site to another data center. But they're rarely we're we're 
we're seeing more and more people uh, buy larger and larger, like 45 drive systems where they're just for an extra copy of the data. They're not always the top line system tying to their virtualization target or main company storage. I mean, because people ask sometimes like 45 drives doesn't have redundant motherboards. I'm like, yeah, we sell a ton of them just for backups. We just sold a company 300 terabytes of 45 drive servers for backups just to have another copy. That's was there because they didn't know where to put all the extra data they wanted to have on site. They keep it off site. But you know how long it takes to get 300 terabytes back? <laughs> they, they did the math I've done it before. I've actually had to do that once. <laughs> so yeah, I do. I actually know how um, how long it takes to uh, copy down a terabyte actually. So, um, but I, I'm in mostly agreement. I, I think the response to this de depends on how you define the number two, because my, I think the issue is that the older definition of the second part doesn't fit anymore today. Um, and I could even argue it didn't fit back then. I like to define it as two different places, not two different mediums. I think that really makes more sense Yeah. because um, if you think about it, I have, um, several laptops and um, a couple desktops that have SyncThing installed. So I have a copy of everything on every computer. Now, I'm not going to have a second SyncThing or a second... I mean, I, I have like six or seven computers that have all the same files. And even if I deleted something and it was past the history, there's probably a computer I haven't turned on in a couple of months that has the original file. And as long as I make sure it doesn't connect to Wi-Fi, then it doesn't get the instruction to delete anything. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you have to lose a hard drive on six or seven systems, I think you have number two, like more than covered at this point. And there's really no yeah. point to go any further than that. But even back then, um, there's a lot of misunderstandings because someone might have an external hard drive and also burn DVDs back in the day as their number two. There's two different mediums, but they may not know that the shelf life of data on a hard drive starts to be lost after one year. And then I think the average was 17 months for a DVD-R to retain its data. So at this point, the person would have that box checked and have two completely invalid backups after um, a couple of years. So even back then, it was kind of sketchy. I think you have to take data retention into account. I'm sure that's probably why tape is coming up. But I would argue, as far as I know, flash drives are the new tape. Because if I wanted to back up, let's just say, an entire year's worth of YouTube uploads, I could do that on a $20 flash drive from Micro Center. And done. Yeah. I don't have to think about anything else. And I can put that in a safe somewhere. And then but, in that case, I could check the box for number two for that with that. So, But degradation is still a thing even on a flash drive over time. Really? Um, there is the chance that the membrane, if you will, to describe it, when they push the ones and zeros into those spots, that that could not fade over time. So that could be... Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was eternal. I mean, no. pretty much eternal on flash. I thought it was... Reading is the easy part. Writing, uh, there's a writing there's is a the harder part, but there's uh, some fear, and I just don't know exactly how founded this is, but it, it applies to magnetic mm -hmm. medium too. Basically, there's a drift where that differential uh, voltage where it reads it could drift more towards neutral, and therefore you wouldn't be able to read in the future. Uh, Steve Gibson actually talked a lot about this at where spin write one of the advantages it can have, even on flash drives, can be re-pushing those bits back through and refreshing them once in a while. This is one of the arguments for keeping a lot of this and avoiding bit rot because it literally those bits can just kind of 
wander. <laughs> you think about the, the scale that these tribes are working at and then the tiny, tiny nature of it. And there's not an easy way to say, what does this look like in 10 years? Like you can right. read, write many times, but what about just sitting? We learned um, some of the very first DVDs that came out and CDs specifically. One, they were expensive Two, One of the things we learned is the uh, medium would oxidize. There was a whole bunch of, I remember we used to sell the first cheaper rewritable ones, the ink based mm -hmm. ones. And it turns out the ink would go bad in them. So they would become unreadable after time. There were short batch of them. This is like in the early two thousands. It was an issue. So yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting um, challenges of what does archival look like? <laughs> I think at this point, I mean, the good thing to bring up is something like Backblaze B2 or equivalent, yeah. because then, you know, that doesn't, I mean, I mean, you need two areas or two destinations, in my opinion, but one of them could easily be that. And then if you have versioned backups locally and then you have something offsite, it's their problem. But you're also testing your backups because I feel like that doesn't get enough focus. It's um, don't get me wrong. You really do need to focus on uh, long term retention, but don't let that supersede looking into testing your backups because right. if you have your backups and they're useless, they're useless. Um, so maybe you'll plug that flash drive in every now and then. Maybe yes. you'll download something from um, a couple files from Backblaze to see if you could read those files or you know restore a VM disk you've backed up to make sure it even boots or whatever it is you do. But you have to do something just assuming the data is going to be there. But when it comes to retention or when it comes to anything else, is is just not something you ever want to assume. Yeah, untested backups are just wishful thinking. Um, I want to answer a question that was a little bit earlier in here, which was someone asking, said they have a 50 megabit internet and they're talking about a Netgate 1100. And they talked about Sericata. I would not run Sericata on a Netgate 1100. I've mentioned this before when I've talked about the Netgate hardware. Uh, the 1100 and even a little bit the 2100, they're going to be a little bit underpowered to run things like Sericata on there. They can. I don't think it's going to be a great experience. Um, so if you're if you're thinking about running Sericata, don't run it on that small of a device. Um, go a little bit further up on that. Yep. Got that. All right. Now I can catch up on the other questions. I had that one held. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know we had any new ones in the spreadsheet. I'm There's just a couple in the spreadsheet. Um, so Yeah, which is always good to see for sure. Um, but one of the next things I'm going to mention, because <clears throat> I started an argument on Twitter, apparently, and uh -oh. I'm doing a video on this, but we're, we're going to go through, uh, some of the firewalls I'll be talking about and why this is, this is where people really got in a debate. I like doing the firewall comparison videos. It's been a while since I've done one. Uh, so I'll be doing that. And one of the things that I, I try to limit it to is Firewalls I've actually had some experience with, or at least worked with uh, throughout vendors, so I can give you my take. Um, but I don't mind hearing from you. And one of the big ones, and this will probably start the first debate here, is going to be whether or not we cover or I cover um, OpenSense, because I just don't see it. I'm not saying there's no commercial usage of it. We just don't see it as much. And I don't have a problem yeah. with the product. I think it's good. But PFSense versus OpenSense seems to be this uh, polarizing thing. And it's as polarizing as people who want to talk about what their favorite distro is. It's um, yeah. definitely started some arguments on Twitter. So I'm trying to decide if that, what, say if I include it, I don't have much experience with it, so I don't know how much value it adds, but I know some of the same audience here likes to hear my thoughts on some of those firewall videos too. So this is also an opportunity for people to 
offer some feedback before I make this video. The Twitter feedback was 99% good and 1% uh, people telling me, I can't believe you're not listing OpenSense. It's my favorite firewall. And I'm like, it can be your favorite firewall. I, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. I'm just offering some of my experience with, that I've had with these firewalls. And I haven't had a good or bad experience with uh, OpenSense. I've had mostly no experience with it other than right. people trying to align. Um, there's a, a lot of people comment at my forums are trying to align the tutorial I did with doing an open sense. And they go, Tom, why don't you do an open sense? So I don't have to try to figure out where these buttons are. And I'm like, I don't have the incentive to um, learn a different product because it doesn't offer anything so compelling that is different. I did learn something I didn't know from one of the commenters. So this is at least interesting to people. They have on their paid version, uh, a dashboard you can get for all of your open senses as long as they're all on a paid version. So there's that as an option, um, I guess, but I don't know if that makes it different. But nonetheless, I like hearing from some of you on some of these questions. You can hit me up on the forums on this if, you, if you're listening to this after the live show. Uh, tweet at me on Twitter. I don't mind DMs for discussions for things like this too. Um, but I, I've made that list public. Uh, I'll probably repost it again today because I've actually expanded the number of firewalls. Matter of fact, here's the current list of ones because I've at least worked with them. We got PFSense, our Arista Untangle. Untangle became Arista Edge is the new name, but we, hmm. so we call it there. USG, UDM Pro, UDM Pro SE. I guess I could probably throw the Dreamwall on there because they're all the same, essentially. Um, I threw 48 Sophos, I don't have much experience with, but uh, I'm going to defer to, because I did talk with uh, Christian Lempa. He's a friend of the channel. He runs That Digital Life, um, and he's got some Sophos videos I'll be referring to. He really likes that particular firewall. I know other friends I have like it. I just don't have any experience with it, but I'll, I'll at least mention the features it has on there. And I threw in there for just because of the other side, the business side, the Meraki on there. I know that's not anything home lab people are interested in, but people always ask me, what do I think of uh, Meraki? I at least put the features it has on there. And I'm going to add a few of my thoughts on Meraki as well. We actually have clients using it. So it, it it's something I've got experience with. Um, we don't recommend it, but at least I can tell you what it can or can't do. I also did leave Meeker tick off there um, for... <clears throat> lack of experience with them and any experience I've had is they're complex. The documentation is not great. Um, so I, and the features saying it does it and saying it does it well are, I'm not clear on. So I'm just kind of leaving it off there. Uh, and then I started to see the other things, Palo Alto. Now, once you get into the Palo Altos and a lot of these other ones, um, the, was that Pan OS that they run? The, the tricky part of even putting those on a list becomes they all kind of have the same features. They all check all these boxes. They all have these high-end things. I don't have any experience with them, so I can't tell you their implementation is really what you're asking. Like, hey, they can all support this feature, but which one does it well? Which one has good support? I don't have any idea. I don't even know how to quantify that. Um, if I haven't worked with the Palo Alto firewall, if I haven't worked with a um, fully licensed with all the confusion around it, sometimes like a whole Cisco firepower set up with all their um, bells and whistles on there, I don't know. And you'll get, you, you can watch the debates over in Reddit. Some people like it. Some people don't. It all comes down to support. So, 
Uh, someone mentioned checkpoint. I have not seen a checkpoint in a wild in years. I've uh, our friend, mutual friend of the show here, uh, Tony, used to manage checkpoint firewalls, but even he he was at a love hate relationship with them um, himself. <laughs> so, but that's one person's opinion from five. Oh, oh wait, Tony was the manager of them in 2014. So I I bet the company's different from 2014. So there's kind of. These are some of the tricky parts for uh, doing them. So I'm kind of, I'm narrowing it down in experience to which ones I've used. I also see uh, people talking about Vios, Vios and from NetGate, uh, TNSR. I don't use either one of those. I think they're good firewalls. I think they're very popular in a data center. They're command line driven. They don't have web interfaces. They're people who are familiar with them, love them. That's awesome. They tell me and sing their praises. I know a lot of people had a lot of success with the uh, Tinster. I think it's how they call it, the one from NetGate. I know a lot of people like Vios. I know people that use it in a data center, like casual people I know, but that's not enough to give me an explanation of, is it a good firewall to use? And it probably goes outside the scope of home lab people, so. I completely agree, but I think there's another um, aspect to this too, because when you have a YouTuber unlike us that has like a, a huge team and a building and they, I mean, they, these things are easier because for me, if I wanted to check out OpenSense, I do want to check it out, by the way, I am actually interested in this, but to give it a fair shake, what I feel like I'd have to do is replace PFSense with it yep. to test it out, but that's not easy. Like I'm, if I do this, I'm going to be dealing with every system alerting my phone that it's down, and then I'm going to have to um, make you know do a one-to-one -one settings for all the VLANs and everything, which I can absolutely do. That that's you know my my skill set absolutely meets that requirement. But when I have to do all of that, when other videos are not going to be as much work, then that's kind of going to be a situation where if I go that direction then I think YouTube is going to go a week without videos one week completely because that time I just can't upload anything because that project will encompass everything that I'm doing. So I want to do all of these things, but practicality fits in here because um, one thing I do plan on doing when I get bigger is I want to have a, a networking lab or even just a lab. Like I could just swap the the router, the firewall, whatever in the lab and that it's fine because it's um, what it's for. But all I have is a production network. I don't have anything else right now. So um, that's something to keep in mind. And it's, it's interesting. I've, I had someone um, ask me on Twitter once, like, this new ThinkPad, can you review it? And I'm thinking, I would love to. I would, I would review the heck out of that. But no matter how many times I at Lenovo on Twitter, they don't care. They're not looking at my channel. Um, I've never been able to get anyone to return any form of communication. So... And I can't afford to just randomly buy a computer. Believe me, I want to check out the ThinkPad 13. I think it's the X13S, which is the ARM ThinkPad. If I can get Linux working on that, it'd be so fun. That'd be a great video, but it's also $1,300. So if uh, Lenovo is not sending it, then I can't review it much in the same way when it comes to time. I may not have time to switch my entire production network to OpenSense just for one video, even though I absolutely want to do it. Um, I have to have a balance between difficulty and um, saying yes to everything. I think that's always the challenge. Yeah, it's and it's a challenge um, when you have, like myself, just a ton of complicated rules, reinterpreting those rules over yep. into Proxmox isn't easy. And one of the things I'm going to be very clear about is my bias towards PFSense, not just because I've created um, videos or tutorials isn't my bias, whereas someone, someone insisted online I was a reseller and I said, you can check their site, I'm not. But 
I do like the product because I know it very well. And unless another firewall offers a compelling reason to use it, like, oh, PFSense has this big gap and this gap, I need something to fill this gap. How am I going to fill this gap? Okay, then we can swap it for something else. But that gap, it doesn't exist for me. So most of the people haven't outside of really, I can't find any compelling reason. People were just calling one person went to just calling me names on Twitter, which is perfect. The absolute exact use for Twitter, I think to call someone names. And I said, calling me names doesn't make a compelling argument that I should use open sense. Like that's like, I don't understand. Um, there, there kind of has to be like a push towards it for me to take the time to be complicated. The other side of it is one of my favorite comments, um, on my videos and Jay, you've probably got a comment like this or two was, all you do is RTFM and make videos about it. And I'm like, yes, that's actually a wonderful thing. And I do that. And I'm not bothered by that. I don't even take it as an insult. I'm happy that PF Sense has such a good manual. This is something lacking in why people ask for videos on lots of the other ones is because they can't find good documentation on something. A project isn't just about the features of the firewall or let's go bigger. A lot of Homeland projects, a big drive for those projects is going to be is there good documentation to get that project set up and running? If that project does not have good documentation, that's sometimes the other reason we have people clamoring, please make documentation for it, Tom. And I'm like, it's hard for me to make documentation in the form of a video, but I don't even have starting documentation to read from to start creating the video. Uh, Jay has run into this with a couple of projects Um well, when we were talking about the cloud in it stuff, how there's a, mm -hmm. a lack of documentation, yeah. people ask for videos, but it also made it harder for Jay to make the video because there's just missing and there's gaps in some of it. So that's kind of a driving factor. And uh, that's where I'm going to leave the firewall topic. Oh, also, by the way, I threw a link for those of you that don't want to go look on my Twitter, which is public, uh, but to the uh, public version of the document of where it's at with all the firewall stuff on there. So uh but nonetheless, that documentation, I'm trying to figure out how to word that into a feature list of having really good documentation. I think it's just a verbal thing I say. I can vouch right. for a sense having good documentation. I feel like when people make comments like that, they are severely not getting the point. Because what I think everyone needs to understand <laughs> is everyone learns differently. And not only that, there's learning disabilities and there's different levels of retention. Every single human being has a different capacity when it comes to learning. They learn faster, they learn slower. One person might have challenges when it comes to learning that another individual may not um, experience. So when you tell someone to read the manual, you are telling them everyone learns the same way and everyone can learn by reading. And the thing is, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the air, but I'm just gonna say it. Um, I don't learn well by reading. I could write books, I love to write, I love to um, watch, you know, make videos, obviously. But when I'm reading the manuals, I have to read a bunch of times until I understand, even though there's nothing wrong with the way that it's written. It's written clear. It's concise. The doc, Even when the documentation is good, I look at it and I'm like, I don't get it. I have to keep reading and trying. And it's not until I get my fingers on the keyboard and I start going through that I actually get it. So when someone in the past told me to read the manual, I'm like, yeah, if I could if I could learn that way, that'd be great, but that's just not how I learn. So when we look at the manual and then understand and do the work to understand it, and then we try to, you know, tell our audience about it in plain English so that they can understand it better. I do feel that there's a subset of the audience that might be thinking, you know, I have trouble reading or understanding this, but this video, I can learn by watching this video better than I can learn by reading the manual. 
And I also feel like there's a, a big driving force there as far as why our channels are popular, because I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. So I don't really like this generalization that some people have with like putting everyone in the same box, read the manual. I mean, if that, if, if that worked 100% of the time, our channels would not exist. We would not have a platform. Nobody would watch us because everybody would learn from the manual. There'd be no purpose for our channels to exist. But the very fact that our channels are popular is proof that not everyone learns the same way. So yeah. there you go. Um, there's there's another, it's a, I'll, I'll answer, well, it's not really a question, it's a comment um, mm -hmm. that someone used ChatGPT based on recommendations. They're new to Home Lab and they're happy because it worked. The, it fixed the problem they had with Samba. <laughs> so it's amazing. I read that too. And I I I was just thinking about how how great that is because I, I used that for um Ansible syntax once and I, I Googled like crazy because it was one of those situations where you have to have the correct search terms, which is always the case, but sometimes Google thinks it knows more than you about what you are looking for and is completely off the grid. And you have to, no, 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 Google, I'm trying to find this. And it's just hard, but just ask chat GPT. I found the answer in like five minutes when I spent an hour on Google and couldn't even figure it out. So there's yeah. definitely a lot of value there for sure. Yep. So um, the next thing I'll bring up is the, speaking of this, I, could be wrong, but uh, I'm working with them directly, uh, talking to them, and I'm working on a new video for Graylog. So uh, get your questions ready for that, and feel free to send some feedback, but I'll be doing an updated Graylog 5 because they made some changes. But what I want to do and something I want to start doing going forward here, um, and Jay's probably with me on this, I'm going to start creating. I actually had one of my friends, he created a script to install Graylog for you to make it easier. But I'm not just mm -hmm. going to say, use the magic. I'm going to walk through the script in my video. Yeah. Um, of why this script works, what you may want to change for your custom of your installation. So you understand what this script does. There's nothing weird in it. It's not in any complicated. It's all just done. It's going to be some Docker, um, Docker deploy, but it's a good way to get started. And it's also the reason it's a little bit trickier is because I wanted to make sure we're implementing open search, right? Because there was a fork between elastic and open search. Uh, yep. if you want to read about that, um, that's an interesting, uh, I don't know who's who's right uh, because it's been a little while since I read on it, so I don't want to conflate anything. But there's some drama between Open Search and Elastic Search, and they have chose to go that you can still use Elastic and Graylog, but you can use um, Open Search as well. And I wanted to go the Open Search path because that seems where Graylog is going with it. It's all open source, and Graylog is open source, and Graylog is a highly recommended one of my favorite log aggregation tools. It is absolutely free to use in your home lab because uh, it's open source, and you can just download it. To, Problem is just downloading it um, is a little harder now because they don't offer like an OVA file. But with this script, it'll be easy. It'll be something mm -hmm. I want to give away for free on my channel. And I want to start doing this more often where I build some of these. Um, I'm not the best at building them, but I do have people like Jay or in this case, my friend Phil built the script because uh, we were chatting about stuff. And maybe we can get Phil on as a guest sometime because he is oh, yeah. he is a wealth of information. <laughs> he's he's um, one of just amazing Linux people I know out there. Uh, so he does some cool stuff. He's a great, great person. Yeah. He, yep. he, he's just, his knowledge is, is like the, how, like, yeah, I know some people might think this about me, but I think this about him. I'm like, how did he learn all of this? And how is he retaining all of this information? And this is, I mean, if you think I remember a lot about these things, like he eclipses me on some of these things in ways that you will not believe. <laughs> like he he can tell you every different direction of SSL and how every single thing traverses while he's doing a pull request 
for fixing the problem as he's explaining it to you. Yeah. And I'm not kidding. He he's has a fun guest. I have literally texted him. I'm like, I have this problem. And then he'll respond back with, what the heck are they doing? Hold on. And then he texts me back again. He's like, yeah, I just submitted a pull request. Here's what's going on. And and they'll if they accept the request, it'll fix it. I'm like, wow, okay, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And <laughs> Phil works for the Linux Foundation doing this. Yep. So he's he's being very effective in his role, we'll just say. Um, yep. Of note, we we did I, I'll, one less slightly off topic side note, but um, Phil was testing out chat GPT because of all the hype. And then he was, I think if I'm not mistaken, he was complaining because he coded better than chat GPT. So he was able to write more efficient code or something. And it, it just made me laugh. Cause I'm like, I would have been happy with the code that worked. Cause it was a pretty, it, it was a complicated thing. You did not ask it to do something basic. Um, and right. we definitely laughed on that. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and by the way, I broke my gray log. So um, yeah. I think it probably happened if it if unattended upgrades rolled it over to the new version. It's just a theory. I need to look at it. But I'm also kind of thinking maybe I just want to delete it and start it over. So I might want to take a look at that script, too, just so I can make sure I can send it over to you. <laughs> yeah. Compare my um, what I did with that. I'm just debating between trying to fix it because I do want to know what went wrong, but I also want it to work. So there's that balance, you know? Yeah. Um, and what went wrong is if you upgraded Mongo improperly as I did, <laughs> that's what goes wrong. Uh -oh. <laughs> well, but maybe that's what happened to me. Cause all I know is that it, it there's just, it, you know, I could start, I could start the process, but there's nothing listening on the port. It's like, it's running, but there's nothing listening. It's like weird. It's like in this halfway in between state. So yeah. yeah fun times. Yep. So Greylog, uh, going from four to five is hard. I don't know how I'll, I don't think they've done a good script for that. So that is at least something I'll put as a comment is a challenge. And the reason why is you have to export the settings from Mongo and then re-import them. Um, and I don't think they have any automated script for that. So I'm just going to, you can just reload Greylog 5 fresh and most of your config you can copy over. Then you can take, if you're using any of the parsers, you can just re, you can export your parsers and re-import them. Uh, but I also may look, I may reach back out to the Greylog people and see if they have directly, or if someone there could write it. As I said, look guys, I'll do a video for you on it. Can you guys write a script that just dumps Greylog 4 and lets me import it to Greylog 5? They said it's been on a feature request, like as a function inside their system, but they've not actually written it. Um hmm. So it'd be kind of cool if they did, because I, you know, one of the things I really like about, we'll go back to like PFSense as an easy example. TrueNAS could be an example of this as well, because TrueNAS is even uh, from core to scale, you can do this. You can grab your config file in PFSense and load a brand new PFSense and just pop that config file in and everything just lines up. So you're never worried about, it's one single config file. Same thing for TrueNAS. And TrueNAS goes a step further, because if I had to restore all my TrueNAS core machines, core to core works, but I can also export from core reload the machine and then load scale fresh if i wanted to import the config uh scale did they didn't do the reverse but they do have the ability to take a config from core and import it into scale um which is nice um that, that they have they have a conversion tool for it built in it detects that it's a different download and i wish more companies would do that when you have a bunch of preferences set up inside there um, that are, I get why they store it in Mongo as a database. It's a good database to store it in for that use case because they mm -hmm. use OpenSearch or Elastic for the heavy lift of parsing logs. But the configurations, hey, store them all in Mongo. It makes sense instead of a flat file, except I wish it was a way to get them out. This is actually how Unify works. Uh, same thing. They use Mongo just to store all your config data. Um, and they do have an import to go between versions. Now there's a whole crazy path. If you haven't updated your Unify in forever, 
that is a different problem. Uh, but if you keep up incrementally um, with major versions, you're fine and it will incrementally upgrade that. So that's kind of my little rant on all of that. <laughs> At least one person in, in the chat room feels like the documentation with Graylog could be better. I, I don't remember yeah. enough to confirm or deny that, but I will say for whatever reason, um, probably could just be because of because of how I learned, like I just said. I mean, I just watched Tom's video and that's how I implemented mine. Mm. So, you know, that then I was all set. And what my interaction with Graylog, uh, this is one of those times where I really took Graylog apart to figure out how it worked. And then I realized they didn't have documented the flow, the ingress and process by each component of Graylog of where your data flows through. So one of the things I did with my Graylog video, which actually caught the attention of the Graylog people, was I actually created a document that um, a flowchart of where the data lands and mm. each one of the different menus oh, yeah. that you can land on that it goes through because it does kind of ping pong around and each uh, one has an option to apply certain rules or triggers to it. So it matters how you do it. And there's actually more than one way, depending on your use case. So um, it, it's, it's not documented as well as it could be. And this is the problem. Graylog was once again, born as an open source project, got really big. They have a business model behind it, but they're, it's hard writing documentation. And I think that's where people kind of overlook the fact that uh, the, the team at NetGate really does a good job of keeping their documentation up to date. Matter of fact, they do good at changing when there's as new versions of PFSense have come out, the documentation matches very fast. This is a challenge they're having uh, heavily at Chernash right now. Their changes are far exceeding the documentation. So some of their documentation needs updated information to where things that have changed with versions of TrueNAS scale. Uh, Scale's documentation is still in it. They, they admit it. They're not hiding it. They're like, yeah, we're working on it. And um, that's how it's going. <laughs> this is a big part yeah. of the open source project is the usability factor comes from the documentation. I think we just need to double down on the fact that... Um, Every now and then we should mention, you know, if you're trying to get into open source and contribute and you don't feel like your coding skills are as good as you want them to be, even though your coding skills are probably fine, let's be honest. But even if you're not into coding at all, you could just learn the whole process of working with an open source project by, you know, actually contributing to the documentation. And, and we're not, and some people might read that as, it's better than nothing. You may as well do the documentation thing if you can't do anything else. That's not what we're saying. Um, documentation is important. It's extremely valuable. Yeah. And you are doing a major service for the community and it's extremely appreciated. And don't under, don't, you know, devalue that type of thing. If you want to help out a project, um, as many times as we see bad documentation, we don't mean bad like the person is just doing bad things. We mean like, they, you know, developers are not always writers. It's just the way it is. Not everyone has every skill set. So if you have a skill set that maybe someone else doesn't possess, you could contribute that if you have the time. So, um, yeah, I mean, just try to, if you're, if you want to yeah. be involved, that's a great way to do it. I absolutely agree with that. It should not be diminished. Like you're creating great value. If you can create documentation for open source projects and you'd be shocked. It's, it's actually a good way to make friends with a lot of developers and uh pro tip. If you are someone creating a lot of documentation, but you also run into a feature request, if you, they already like you because you're creating documentation, they're a lot more likely to put that uh, feature request at the top of the pile and just throwing it out there. 
<laughs> are you are you saying that like screaming on a bug report and yelling at the developers and 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 complaining that it hasn't been fixed in two months and just yelling at them doesn't work? Oh yeah. my gosh! Neither is complaining about it in YouTube comments, and neither is complaining about it on Twitter. It turns out all of those, oh, or Reddit. So uh, any social platform complaining about these things is definitely not the way to get the developers to fix it. <laughs> no, that's that's actually a good way to activate oppositional defiance. <laughs> yeah, it it really is because they're like, oh, these yeah. complain about this bug. Because the developer knows you could just go here, go there, and you're like, yeah, anyways. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the way it is. I mean, everyone scratches their own itch at the end of the day. That's usually why things get fixed, because as soon as a developer runs into it, it is what it is. But um, then again, if you're contributing back, I mean, you're part of that community. You can even, if nothing else, you could even just understand what the underlying issue is, just because it seems like a, an, easy to, an easy thing to fix. It's usually not. It's actually pretty challenging a lot of times so yep. um, but anyway yeah just write documentation we we would love that uh you did that if you did it um the last question i have here that i wanted to put i wanted to save this one for last because this is let us know uh and, and send us the feedback on this because I, I like this person um this is an email that came in jay that the title was or subject line was just thank you uh, they talk about managing data and being in the industry for a while but i think this is kind of a fun topic and this is definitely a veronica topic maybe mm -hmm. uh a trip down memory lane with Linux, talking about some of the oh, yeah. um, history of Linux. Now, both of us have been doing this for a while, and I think Veronica seems also well-versed on a lot of the history of Linux. And I think that's just kind of a, you know, how do we get here? I think it's kind of related to Home Lab. It's, it, it, it dives into some of the bases. I mean, who doesn't remember loading? Well, I, I say who doesn't remember. Some of these people <laughs> were not born when I was trying to figure out how to get my mouse working with X server on my four floppy drive, four, five, five floppy disks of the Red Hat. <laughs> it's so true, though. I feel like Veronica does a better job than I do when it comes to historical things. I by think far. she's really among, into that. So. Yeah, among all the other things that she does well. Um, so, But the thing is, yeah, that'd be a great, um, great fit um, for yeah. sure. So maybe we'll um, do an episode on that. I think that yeah. this is a fun, like, let's walk through the history of Linux. <laughs> I feel like that's something I should know backwards and forwards. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all human, right? I, I learn it. Yeah. And then if I don't think about it, you know, every month, then, you know, I, I guess my hard drive has data retention issues or shelf life issues in my brain. Because after a while, if I don't use the data, it just starts to fade. So maybe that's uh, proof that we are in a simulation. Okay, that's a whole different subject I won't yep. get into. But all things considered, I, I think uh, having more guests would be a lot of fun for sure. Yep. Yep. And I think that history lane uh, thing makes, I, I think there's just some fun in uh, having that as a topic. Let us know, leave your comments yep. down below. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit us up at feedback at the home lab dot show. Uh, if you just want to email us, we like hearing from you and uh, that's it. Thank you. Thank you.